Today's episode is a keynote speech, a talk that Jamie Brissick delivered back in June at the Philosopher Convergence Conference. Brissick has authored seven books. His most recent, Dazzling Blue, is published by today's show sponsor, Birdwell. It's a collection of 58 short nonfiction stories centered around Jamie's surf experience. At 20 bucks, it is a must-have, and also really consider it just as a gift to give for the holidays to colleagues or for people whom you aren't sure what to buy. It's available on birdwell.com, who has generously given us a promo code for you to save 10% off your entire purchase, not just that of the book. And that promo code is the word SURF. So you probably know Birdwell as Birdwell Beach Bridges because they've been making board shorts here in Southern California since 1961, but they've actually just introduced an entire fall and winter line of clothing, hoodies, jackets, corduroy work shirts, all designed and manufactured here in Southern California to the same exacting specs as their board shorts, meaning that everything comes with a lifetime guarantee. My favorite article is a terry cloth polo made from this super comfy terry cloth, just like a towel or a luxurious bathrobe. But it has a tailored cut and little wooden buttons, so it doesn't really look lazy or ill-fitting like a bathrobe does. It's actually really thoughtfully designed, and all of this line is kind of carefully selected and, again, handcrafted a mere 15 miles from where I am recording this right now. Lots more to come in the future from Birdwell, and I highly recommend you adding some of their clothing to your wardrobe. These are heirloom quality pieces that you can pass down. They are that well-made and also that timeless in design and style. So birdwell.com, our promo code is the word SURF for you to save 10%, and also it does go a long way to supporting this show. So thank you for doing that. What's going on? Philosopher Convergence is an annual conference hosted by Dr. Patrick Findler and Dr. Colin Ruloff. They bring together philosophy professors and graduate students who share a passion for philosophy and surfing. This year's conference took place in Del Mar, San Diego, where I was invited by the organizers as a guest. I asked if I could record Jamie's talk, and they happily obliged. So I had no prepping on what to expect. And I didn't know what the format was going to be or what Jamie would be discussing, but I actually learned a lot through this chat. Jamie essentially shares his biography, but somewhat told through the lens of his writing life. So him discovering writing, it's stuttering at times and flourishing at others, how it's been reinvigorated through seminal life events, the loss of his brother, the want and lack of his pro-surf career, his disillusionment with surf media, the loss of his wife, and most recently, the loss of his home in those Malibu fires, which his recounting of was published in The New Yorker. I've posted a link to that on my website. So this talk contains many levels of interest for me. Firstly, simply to get to know Brissick better. I learned things about him that I didn't know before. But secondly, just to understand how the writing process works how it manifests itself, and how it's very much influenced by what you're going through on a given day, 
which is why you should never put it off because your work will be different tomorrow than it is today. So it's a good reminder to not procrastinate, especially with creative projects. And just a slight further ado, Jamie Brissick and I recorded our original podcast chat a couple years back, and then another episode after we surfed Surf Ranch together with Matt Warshaw. So I've linked to those conversations in your show notes. Here today, he charts new territory. He talks about the first time he smoked pot and drank beer. Talks about his foray into BDSM, an encounter with Duchess Dusad in a sex dungeon. So much to tell, but I will let Jamie do the honors. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is Jamie Brissick live at the Philosopher Convergence Conference. Enjoy. And we turn belief into evening. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, um, actually, I don't. I don't need. I don't. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll just dive right in. Um, my first skateboard was a 24-inch Bane with Chicago trucks and Cadillac wheels. I lived in uh, the Encino Hills, which was not quite the valley, and it was not quite sort of the cool beach or city area. Um, and I. This was around 1975, 1976. I was the youngest of three brothers. Um, and we were just fascinated with skateboarding. I mean, that was kind of all we did. Um, Evil Knievel was on Wide World Sports at this time. There was this sort of sense of wanting to be a daredevil. And, uh, and so most afternoons, I was the sort of the youngest of the three of us skateboarding down this steep hill where we lived. And, uh, and we were, the Skateboarder Magazine was out at the time and we were fascinated by the Dogtown skateboarders. Um, and it was interesting because it was, I mean, it was partly their style on the board, but it was also their, their, the way they dressed and the long hair. And all, it was all this kind of, what's the word? It, it just sort of looked, they, they looked like outlaws. They, they were, there was this appeal that um, in, our, in our nuclear family and mom and dad trying to raise us right, was, it just looked like this was attractive. And so... Um, in 1976, I was 10 years old. My oldest cousin, Jeff, who was 14, um, I don't know how it happened that I ended up with him, just the two of us, but we were at his, his parents were divorced and we were in West LA and he said, let's get on the bus and let's go skate the box pool. And I'd heard a lot about the box pool. It was an empty pool in kind of Bel Air, Beverly Hills. So we took the, we got on the bus, we went over there um, and Jeff said, as we were about to get off the bus, to go to the pool. He said, um, if anyone asks, you tell them you, you live in Santa Monica and that you go to John Adams Elementary School. And uh, that was because I was sort of from the valley. And he, so I had to keep that in my head. And so we hiked up this ice plant and we went in this backyard and there was a, it was actually a rectangle, but they called it the box pool. But there was a square pool and there were a bunch of kids skating it. Um, they were long haired, some were barefoot. I, there was a little like uh, tape, tape, beatbox thing and I think it was playing Aerosmith and uh, and 
I was just thrown into this thing of like, how do you do this? And my cousin Jeff had skated many pools. Um, where the light should be, there was just a hole. And everyone was either going over the top of it or coming up you know, doing a really tight turn to the side of it. But uh, I did my first run and I sort of aimed for the light and came down and, and I was all excited and just feeling it. And then Jeff went and he went up high and then the next guy went and carved around it. And at the time it was sort of, there was the light, there were the tiles, and then there was the coping. Those were like the three measures. And um, so the second one, I thought I'm gonna aim for the light. So I aimed for the light, kind of got maybe two wheels out on it, came down, and then my, one of the guys goes um, to my cousin, you know, wow, he skates good, thinking like I'm the little brother or something, and my, my cousin goes, it's his first pool. And I, I was like, oh, I got a compliment in my first pool. And then, so the next run, I pushed a little harder, and I went up to the light, and as I was kick turning my trucks, I went weightless, the trucks went into the light hole, hung up on the trucks, and I fell straight down on my head and just crashed in my hands. And, and, and then everything's sort of blurry and I see my cousin and he comes, leaves the skateboard, comes down, lugs me kind of over his shoulders and takes me out and puts me on the bench, on the, um, what would be the stairs to get into the pool if, it were, if there were water. And, uh, and I'm just sort of sitting there seeing stars and, and, and suddenly I sort of smell this foreign thing and, 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 I, and this hand reaches over and Jeff goes, here, smoke some of this. And then I get this joint thrown into my mouth. And, I, and he's like, and breathe in deep and hold it in and I kind of inhale and I instantly start coughing. And as, as I'm coughing, it's like, here, bring some of this. And there's a Heineken beer spilled into my mouth and I'm 10 years old. And, uh, and so... And, and everyone's around me and I want to be cool, you know, I want to be awesome. And, uh, and so from there, um, I was not only like my head from the skateboarding accident, but, you know, st stoned and drunk for the very first time. And we went, uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm sort of looking up and there's like a 30 foot monkey ape on stage swiping at airplanes and we're watching King Kong at the new Wilshire Theater uh, on Wilshire Boulevard. And... Uh, and I just saw, I remember falling asleep in the, in the movie and then uh, the next morning I woke up, I wasn't well, my mother took me to the hospital, I came out and I had a concussion and I had broken my thumb and so I had a cast on my hand. Um, and so that was, uh, that was like one of, that was maybe, you know, my early entry into this, that skate world that was so attractive. But shortly thereafter the, the, we moved, my family moved from the Encino Hills into, out to Westlake Village, which was suburbia. And at the time it was kind of a, a, this planned suburban community with the saplings and there was, there was kind of no history. And it was a strange thing where I was, I think I was 11, my brothers were 12 and 13, um, but we, we just intuitively sensed that this is not where we wanted to be. And it was the, it was the sense of like, we, we hate where we live and we kind of conspired together how bad it was. Um, and shortly after we, so we skateboarded all around there and then we found surfing. And uh, that was on a trip to Hawaii. It was 1979, we did a, uh, it was a package deal. Pleasant Hawaiian holidays, Oahu, uh, Kauai, and the Big Island. And we rented Maury Doyles, which were the soft tops at the time. And there was an instructor who sort of explained how to do it, but we went out and, and we got, you know, we mostly fell, but we got a little bit of rhythm and, um, and we realized it was this interesting thing because it was sort of like everything that we were doing on skateboards, we, we kind of did it in reverse. You know, like the surf history came first and then skateboarding was the, the surf surrogate. It was what you did when you couldn't surf. 
we'd learned all these tricks in skateboarding. We didn't even know when we were ducking under hedges that that was like a faux tube and that's, you know. So when we, when we came to surfing, it was uh, a real, it was kind of a natural evolution. Um, but it continued to provide the problem of we're inland, we're in the valley, we're, we're not at the beach, we're not where we want to be. Um, and um, so, we, so we kept surfing, we kept getting better at surfing. Um, the youngest of the three brothers were all kind of mutually into it. And then uh, in 1979, sorry, the, so the trip to Hawaii was 77. So in 79, we went to Europe on a trip. And uh, it was a trip that my dad wanted to do to kind of um, educate us and, and expand us. And he realized that his kids were sort of falling into being hedonists. Um, so he was trying to kind of expand it. Um, and while there, we found punk rock. We were, punk rock was starting in London, or it was going in London for a while. But it was interesting because the aesthetic of punk rock appealed the exact same way the skateboarding did. It was sort of the same way the Dogtown guys look so cool, the punk guys look so cool. And when we were leaving Europe after driving around for a month, um, we get on the plane and it happens to be, we have to be seated right next to, next to a guy who just looks exactly like Sid Vicious. He's got like spiky black hair and he's wearing wraparound glasses and he's got a torn up t-shirt and like safety pins in his ears. And my brothers and I just, you know, bombarded him with questions the entire time, and he was he was actually quite cool. Um, and as and he had a, he had a box or a, like a bag of, of records, he was collecting vinyl. He's on his way to New York, and the flight was Heathrow to JFK to LA, and and he was getting off at JFK. And 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 as he was about to leave, he said, you know, I've happened to have two copies of Richard Hell on the Void, or it's the Blank Generation. You guys can have one. And he gave us this record, and it was. So we go home, we start listening to it nonstop, and then that led us into the punk scene. Um, and so it was a great time. This was 1979, 1980, and, and punk was spreading throughout Los Angeles, and it was hitting the beach. So there, was, there were punks at the beach. Um, and, uh, and the two things, the surfing and the punk rock, seemed to sort of pair so well for a minute, but then I realized that, you know, to go to all the shows was, was to kind of go out late at night and to go surfing seriously would be to get up at dawn. And so my brother Steven, middle brother and me, kind of kept with the surfing. My oldest brother Kevin kept going with the punk, and it was like this clear bifurcation. Um, and right around that same time, it was late summer, we're at third point, so we've been surfing Malibu a lot, and, and Malibu is just an incredibly colorful environment at that time. We had nicknames for everyone out there. Um, there was a lot of great surfing happening. But it was very much of the, you know, pintail, winger pintail, 7-2 single fin style, the kind of very slow moves. Um, it wasn't longboarding, but it definitely wasn't high performance shortboarding of that time. And one day we're there at Malibu, we're, you know, trading waves, all our little crew of friends. And we look out and we suddenly see these guys just flying through the lineup in bright wetsuits. They're dark-skinned, they're riding uh, twin fins, and they're kind of surfing like this, this high-octane surfing that we'd never ever seen before. Um, and right at that same time, suddenly like a, a truck pulls up on the beach and starts to set up a scaffolding. And it turns out that this would be the 1979 Sunkiss Pro which was won by uh, Buttons' Kaluhio Kalani. And the surfers that we saw on the water were all the town and country team. It was Dane Kialoa, Randall Kim, Calvin Maeda, Vince Klein, etc. And just, 
just watching what they were doing on the wave was it was it was so appealing and it was the bright colors and it was just aesthetically it appealed the same it's it's just and maybe you know it's interesting because i it's sort of that age you just drink it up but it was it was like dogtown turned to the water or the punk rock turned to the water but we watched all that it was really really exciting um and that got my brother steven and me into competitive surfing and we started entering contests my older brother continued on the punk deal um and next i um i did well in contests uh, it, it came really easily the first contest i surfed in was at malibu i got second and then i from there i started entering a lot and started winning them got sponsored um and started to clearly you know see see this idea of being a pro surfer and at the time it wasn't it wasn't uh, an established route it certainly wasn't something my father would be into um but i had kind of mentors showing me the way and and i continued to do well in the contests my contemporaries at that time were like brad gerlach tom kern was a couple years older um he was just about to join the the pro ranks and it was this interesting kind of conflict or push and pull because on the one hand the sort of things that appealed about surfing when we started was this wildness but now it was kind of being professionalized or athleticized it was and and, and it was the, there was the NSSA and to get on the NSSA national team you had to get like a good good grades in school uh, so it kind of countered what what it appealed in the beginning but there was also this way to keep surfing which was you know to do well and I got sponsored I got sponsored by um, Quicksilver Channel Islands um, rip curl wetsuits kept doing well in the contest um, and so I was bringing home trophies, feeling really good about it. My middle brother wasn't doing as well as me, and that we were kind of growing distant. My oldest brother was, was deep in the punk scene and, and coming home later and later at night and sort of getting stranger and stranger. And in 1982, uh, which was the, about five days before he would graduate um, high school, he went to a, a high school party and he came, he, he had a, he went through kind of a, a sense of being a deep outsider. I don't even know how to put it, but uh, he drove my father's car to an alley and slashed his wrists and, um, and came home and he, he went to his bed to, you know, hopefully never wake up. But my mother had some sense that something was wrong and she went and intervened and saw that he was slashed up and took him to the hospital. He got like 60 stitches in his wrists. And, uh, and so that sort of changed this, this like, this sugary life that I was on was dramatically changed in that moment. It was like, you know, I'm trying to do this thing, getting sponsored, I'm hanging out with these lighthearted kids, but then this is going on at home. So, it, so he went on, he went to UC Berkeley. He was a very well-educated, you know, re really, really smart guy. But when he went to, so he was using heroin, that's, I should say. Um, when he went to Berkeley, it, it just got worse. And, um, and so there was a period, the sort of, the period where I was trying to make my pro career happen, my family life was a wreck. My mother and father were spreading apart because of my, for a lot of reasons, but presumably my brother's drug addiction did not help. And uh, so I had this kind of like great escape life where I would go up and down the coast surfing contests and doing well, which was great, but also coming home to just things falling apart. And, uh, and so, I, so Quicksilver was my sponsor. They sort of dangled this carrot of if you win the West Coast Championships, we'll, we'll buy you a ticket to Australia and you can turn pro. So I won the West Coast Championships. And in 1986, I went on my first pro tour 
foray uh, uh, trip. And uh, the first event was the studies of Burley Heads, which was terrific because I've been studying Burley Heads in the magazines and movies before that. Saw all my favorite surfers. I mean, I went to this hotel and literally like going out for my first surf in Australia, I push the elevator because it's this high rise at Burley Heads and I walk in and there's Mark Richards coming out of the water with his MR Superman board. And, um, you know, all my favorite surfers were out there and there was, and, and, and so I was thrown into that world. Um, but it was interesting because that pro tour at that time was, uh, it was part, it was getting more and more professional but there was definitely this other side to it where like my first night, you know, I surfed Burley Heads with all my heroes and then someone dragged me to Jupiter's Casino that night and I was out till like three in the morning and came home, you know, completely hammered and, and so began my, my pro surfing career. Of, there was a lot of that, like, going back and forth between those two things. Um, but it was very clear to me that I wanted to, you know, keep pushing and keep getting better and, and I wanted to make a pro surfing life work. Um, so I had this great trip and I come home and my brother's, you know, still in it and he's, he's I'm kind of skipping forward with years, but he's in and out of rehabs. Um, there was jail time. There was a lot of this stuff. And my sponsorship, I didn't get enough money from my sponsors to like do all the events on the tour. So it was kind of piecemeal, just pick up whatever I could. Uh, so the 86 season kind of slid by, didn't get to do much. I went on whatever trip I could. Uh, when I was home, I was surfing Malibu and, and working really, really hard at it. In 1987, the tour started and I thought, this is the year I'm going to really apply myself. And if I can uh, get in the top 30, then I can really have a life. Because at this time, it was like the top 34 is now. The top 30 surfers were, were seated. They, then they put two wild cards in each, each event to make it even. Um, but if you were in the top 30, you were making, you know, like 40 grand a year, maybe minimum. Um, which to me seemed like an incredible deal because I was kind of getting by on like 15 grand um, and selling boards as I went. So I go, the first event is in Japan. I get an equal 33rd, I earn $350 and I get kind of my name on the rankings. And then the next event was in Hawaii. I got another 33rd, I'm doing well. Next event is, uh, is South Africa and I do okay. And I'm sitting like 27th on the rankings. We're a few events in. Um, and at that time, my brother, who'd been struggling with his addiction, he'd managed like a period of sobriety to where my father, who always loved to travel to Europe, um, he'd said, you know, if you can manage sobriety for a certain amount of time, I'll take you along on this trip I'm doing to Europe. And this was with my younger sister. And by the way, I have a younger sister. I've left her out only because she wasn't part of the, the, the surfing thing that we did. Um, and so my father, my oldest brother, and my sister went to Europe and at that time I was in South Africa. They were there for a month and I came back from South Africa and, and flew Durban, Johannesburg, Heathrow, Los Angeles. And instead of going home to check in with the family, I went straight down to the Stubbies Pro in Oceanside. And I was like, oh, I'm such a good groove. One contest after another, I was feeling really confident. And uh, so the waves are small and good and kind of to my liking and I, and I'm, all revved up to make this top 30 and I and I get through the trials and then I surf against Australian Bryce Ellis and I beat him in the 33rd round and then the next round is the equal 17th round and I draw Mark Ocalupo and it's like a you know it's a Friday Oceanside sunny tons and tons of people the, and it's on the north side of the pier so the pier is lined with people and, the, and they're cheering and 
at this time, you know, I just, I still, I feel like I'm kind of an imposter, but I'm, but I have done okay in a couple of events and people actually know my name. They're cheering my name, like the Amer you know, they're rooting for the American and, uh, and I go out and do the best I can, but Aki blows me away, of course. And, uh, and when I get out of the water, there are people, you know, waiting out to meet me and get my autograph. And so I'm excited about all this. The Quicksilver people are there watching me and seeing like, oh, Jamie, we got him on the Pro Tour. We're barely giving him any money, but he's kind of making it happen. Good, good stuff. Um, that evening, I get, uh, a, I get a note that I've got to call some reporter for the LA Times because he's doing uh, a piece about pro surfing and uh, he wants me to be the subject of the piece. So I you know, call, have a conversation with him. I'm all excited. And, uh, and then the next morning, I realized like, the contest is over. I haven't been home. I've been on the road. I should go home and check in with the family. Uh, a guy I knew at the event said, I'm headed back up to Malibu. Let's, you know, I can give you a lift. So I go up to Malibu. And there's a, a WSA event happening. And WSA was kind of the, the, the contest body that I graduated from. So I was almost, it was almost like going back to your high school and you're off at Harvard or something like that. And you're kind of like doing great out in the world and you go back and there's this contest on and everyone's like, oh, they'd already heard about my 17th, which, you know, for me was a big deal. And I'm getting uh, congratulated and I'm kind of smugly walking along. And then I see this guy who lives where we do and he goes, hey, Jamie, have you been home? And I said, no, and he goes, your brother's dead and 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 I just have this like whoosh, wash over me and, and I'm like no no that can't be true and and um, and I, I literally I think I thanked him I was like I'd like had this stupid smile on my face and I was like oh okay cool yeah great uh-huh and as I walk to try to you know find out if this has actually happened and I'm down on the beach at third point so it's a long walk to the the payphones at Malibu to call home this is back in the payphone days 1987 as I'm walking, I'm thinking, this can't be true, this can't be true, this can't be true. And as I'm walking, I'm running into people that I know, because at this time I was very entrenched in the surf scene there. And they're telling me, you know, congratulations on your event, on the, on the stubbies, and how was South Africa and all this. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm like sitting here, like trying to process what I've just heard, hoping it's not true, and like smiling my way through this kind of conversation. Just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Finally, I get to the payphones, uh, and the moment I... Yeah, I call, you know, put a quarter in or whatever it was, and I call my mom, and just instantly, from the tone of her her, her, her hello, I know what's happened. And so she says, you know, um, where are you? And I said, I'm at Malibu, but I'm without a car. And she goes, I'm going to come get you right now. And so I have this moment where, I've, you know, my mom's coming to get me. It's going to be about 30 minutes because we lived in the valley, and uh, and I'm at Malibu. I know everyone there, and I'm just like, okay. I've got to meet her. I, we arranged a spot to meet, but I've got about 30 minutes and I don't want to run into anyone because I don't want to like have to pretend or, or be real or whatever. So I walk across PCH and there's kind of this bluff where they shoot a lot of lineup shots of Malibu. And I kind of climb up into this tumbleweed and chaparral, whatever. And I'm sitting up there and I'm trying to process all this stuff. And I look and I'm, I'm wearing like these bright blue Quicksilver sweats with like a big Quicksilver logo down the side. And I'm wearing patent leather red Adidas like run DMC high top sneakers and I'm sitting here like trying to cry because I think I'm supposed to cry not knowing what to process and I'm looking down at just this like clown outfit of like my pro surfing life and I'm thinking you know like I have this thought that I'd never ever would have imagined but it's sort of like you know the logos logos should never ever like be a part of the grieving process you should when you're trying to like think about my brother's 23 years of my life with him and what and the and the fact that I'm he's gone 
Like, I, I shouldn't be looking at Adidas sneakers, for God's sake. My mother picks me up. Um, we, you know, go home. We have the whole funeral. We have all that stuff. But I'm trying to sort of defend my way in the pro surfing ranks. So, I, so I'd missed the OP Pro, which was the event after the stubbies. And, it, and then my, I plummeted. Like, I was 27th, and now I'm like 38th or whatever. Um, and the next leg of the tour is uh, Lacano, France. So I've had this like eight days off or whatever it is, missed the OP Pro, all my peers at this point, they're all my best friends or the pro surfers. They're there, they're like climbing above me on the rankings and, we, and now it's time to go to France. So my mother and father dropped me off at the airport. And at the time there was Par Avion Travel, a travel agency that booked everyone together. So I walk into the airport and there's just like a sea of my fellow surfers with their big coffin board bags waiting to get on, you know, Pan Am flight such and such to Bordeaux or to, uh, to Paris. And, uh, and no one, you know, I don't know how to approach them. They kind of don't know how to approach me. Um, like what I'm going through is nothing that you want to, it's, there's sort of no place for it in this, like the, the, the sort of shorthand of like being a pro surfer where it's like, Oh, how's that board? You know? And, 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 and um, and, uh, and so I just sort of dip into this kind of almost like in denial of everything that I was going through and fly over. Um, I'm with friends. We go to, we fly, we fly to Paris. And then I think we had another flight to Bordeaux and then we rented cars and we headed out to Lacanau, which is a seaside village. And it's like a holiday resort. The contest is on. I get a little wave in the night before. Um, and then I go to sleep in the hotel totally jet lagged and, and it turns out I have like one of the first heats in the morning and I wake up go out for my heat and lose right away and uh, and so so I suddenly go okay you know uh, now I've now I'm even further away from this top 30 ranking that I want and uh, and I sort of try to process it all um, that night everyone's going out to rage because we're all in France and it's fun and so I kind of join in the raging and the raging just sort of keeps going keeps going um, and, uh, and so that was, that was sort of like how the rest of my tour years went. Um, and I had a couple of moments, but it really was this, this like struggling to sort of, there was this thing that I kind of had like postponed processing or I kind of just like, I'm going to evade, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to kind of try to continue to be this like Rocky Balboa, just clench my fist and be an athlete. And also the raging parties that would always happen. But I did all that stuff and I managed. I managed a third in a event in Brazil. I managed a third in an event in South Africa. Um, so there were there were a couple of decent results, but for the most part, I was a middling pro surfer. And then um, I started spending a lot of time in Australia. I met a girl there. I was really we were really serious, um, but I was sort of struggling on tour. And, and I and I sort of just knew I was on borrowed time. It was like, how long can I keep this thing going? 1990, 1991. There's um, a, sort of a, a soft recession, and there's also the emergence of Kelly Slater, who Quicksilver has signed for the most lucrative contract in surf history, which which sort of served the walking papers to several of us. Um, so I knew, like, okay, now's my time. I'm I'm done. Um, and I had this moment where it's like maybe I can try to keep it going, but I it, it's not making sense. And uh, so, but I'm living in Sydney. And, you know, I'd always, I'd read a lot. Um, I'd always kept notebooks and, and diaries while traveling. Um, and so it was very fortunate. I was out surfing one day at Bungin, which is a spot near Newport Beach, 
area, northern beaches of Sydney, and I ran into my friend Andrew Kidman, who was the editor of Waves magazine at the time. And and he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, I'm off the tour. I'm just you know trying to figure out my way." And he said, um, "What do you what do you want to do?" And I was like, "I don't know. You know, I I, I mean, I like to write, and I'm interested in I I, I read a lot." And uh, he goes, "Are you interested in magazines?" And I said, "Totally, I am." And he said, "Well, I need an associate editor." For waves and I've got a small budget to hire someone. Would you be interested? And I said, totally. And 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 he and he said, okay, well come, and I'll introduce you to the publisher, and we can see what happens. And so I instantly get hired, and I and I get this job. And uh, and so as I'm as I'm sort of thinking like my my dream is over, my dream to be a pro surfer is over. Very quickly, this new opportunity comes, and that is to to work for a magazine and to kind of document surf culture. And the big revelation was was I'd been kind of you know doing the best I could, and in many ways I realized it was a going against my character. But I was trying to keep the blinders on to be an athlete. And while this sounds contradictory because there was the parties and all that kind of stuff, but for the most part you were do, you were we knew what the right thing to do was, and the right thing to do was to sort of just be focused. And and when the blinders peeled away, and I was working for a magazine, it was encouraged to be curious and to be interested and to go see music and to go you know see art and and sort of embrace things as opposed to just being a jock it was it was so incredibly liberating and uh and i almost like i over i almost had this sense of sort of overcompensating for the the, the blinders on life that i had been living for a long time so sydney was great and uh the girlfriend and i had fallen apart i spent a year there kind of learning working at the magazine and then um and then i realized that i wanted to be back in california so i moved to la um and I continued to freelance. Um, one very important note, that year in Sydney, when I'd given up on my pro surfing dream and I worked at Waves and Tracks and I was, try, you know, I was tr trying to learn what it meant to be sort of an, a, a writer and a magazine editor, the, the fascinating thing was I did the best surfing of my entire life. And I always liken it to the kind of Chinese finger trap thing where like, you know, for five years of being on tour and for 10 years of being a competitive surfer, I was trying so hard to make it happen. And I look back on videos of myself back then and, I, and it's there, it's this sort of way too wound up. Um, and when that, that process of, I'm no longer a pro surfer, there's nothing at stake here, but I've kind of trained myself to surf for all these years and I've surfed the best waves in the world. Um, it, was, it was so interesting just to kind of go, wow, I'm out of this game now, but it's the best surfing I've ever done. It's now, I've never felt more in my skin on a surfboard. Um, so it was the beginning of a very valuable lesson. Um, so I moved back to LA. I start freelancing for magazines. I want to get away from surfing. Um, and I start working for Bikini Magazine, which they were, Bikini was part of Raygun Publishing. They were really big in the early 90s. Raygun was David Carson, who was this great graphic designer. It was a music magazine. Um, Bikini was kind of like the, the pop culture mag. Um, and I you know, got great assignments away from surfing. I went to write about the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, which was interesting. Um, another magazine sort of knew I was hungry for pieces and I got the assignment to, to write about S&M in, in LA. And I, and I knew absolutely nothing about S&M. I was averaging about $300 a story at the time and this, this English editor who, I don't know why he did this, but he said, you know, I, I'd really love to, for someone to write about the S&M scene in Los Angeles and I've got $2,000 for you to do it. And, to, and I was like, $2,000, it's ridiculous, fantastic. But I had no idea uh, kind of what you know, what S&M is for the most part. And so I have this friend and um, 
I said, look, I've got to write this story. You want to hang with me a little bit? Let's try to make this happen. And he said, sure. And I said, you know, I've heard about this place on Santa Monica Boulevard. It's called Club Fuck, and it happens every Thursday night. And so I dragged my friend along to Club Fuck, and we walk in, and it's a you know classic sort of S&M scene like you would see in, the, in a movie. And in the back is the whipping room. And I go, my friend and I go to the whipping room, and there's a, there's a, a stage, and there's a place where a, a guy's uh, like a, like a, what do you call that thing? He's turned upside down, but he's shackled on. And there's a woman in leather just whipping him. And then the music's thumping, and then she decides to take a break. And she's got a cigarette, and she comes like over. And I'm standing on the edge of the stage like this. And I said, hey. And she comes over, and I said, listen, um, I got this assignment to write about S&M. Um, I don't really know much about the scene. Uh, can you help me out? And she's like, you know, smoking, and she says, you know, well, my, my name is Duchess de Sade, and I work in a dungeon in Culver City called Lady Laura's Dominion. Um, I'll give you my number. You can meet me there. We can talk. And I said, okay, sure. She's like, scribbles her phone number down, and then right then the, the song changes, and the, the dominatrix is doing the whipping is done, and she's like, I'm up, and she runs away, and as she runs away, she flicks her cigarette, and it just rolls and just <laughs> hits me right here. I was like, that was good stuff. Um, so so uh, I ended up writing this piece, which I knew nothing about. And, 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 and I didn't, you know, I, there's no great, no great punchline to my SNM piece story other than the fact that it was something that was so unfamiliar to me and it was just so cool to kind of do that because I'd only written about surfing. And, and the surfing at this point was, I was not, I was less interested in it. It was sort of like doing the same thing and it was kind of a perfect time to, uh, to move on. So I ended up doing a lot of pieces that had nothing to do with surfing, which was great. And it made me realize I had this strange epiphany because while I was a pro surfer, all my friends, the, 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 the folks of the, of the Malibu scene that knew me, they, they, you know, they were like, hey, world traveler, you know, and they, they was, it was like they were, they were, they were complimenting me, which, which was nice, but in fact, like, I had this realization that all I've really done is hug the coastline in my travels. Yes, I've been to all these countries, but I really, you know, I've never really like, I've never really exited the surf scene. It's always been um, among people who are kind of play, praying to the same God, so to speak. It's the, you know, it's so, it felt so homogenized. I'd be in France, I'd be in Portugal, Brazil, whatever, but I'd be hanging out with surfers and it was the same deal. You know, supposedly there's a swell coming tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. Um, so being in LA at that time was great and I was, I was getting exposed to a lot of stuff, but then suddenly, and I was writing for Surfing Magazine, I was a staff writer there and traveling, they were sending me on trips, which was great, but suddenly there was a spot open to be the editor of Surfing Magazine and, um, and the publisher said, you know, your name's come up, Jamie, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely, I'd be interested because I was living hand to mouth, I was living in Venice and this, living this kind of like extreme bohemian lifestyle and I said, yes, I'd like to, I'd, I'd like to put my hand up for it. So I went down, interviewed, got the gig um, and became the editor of Surfing Magazine. This was 1998, 99 and, uh, and it was immediately, I hate to say it, but not a great experience. And, and, and this is because I think the time that I stepped into it, it was when, um, when surfing was becoming more, surf magazines were owned by bigger publishing companies that had multiple uh, public, uh, magazines, and they wanted to see they wanted to see profit. Um, so there was just a lot of pressure. It wasn't like those old romantic surfer magazine days where everyone's kind of like barefoot in there and, and doing what they do, and and it was becoming very corporatized. Um, 
So, and, the, and then the other thing that was really, really difficult was just seeing how much the advertisers sort of bullied around the editorial. Um, and as someone who grew up with the myths of surfing, I mean, surfing was so big to me. And I can remember being, you know, a kid hoping to like, they were, they're doing the Malibu article, maybe I can get my picture in the magazine when I'm 14 years old. And I don't get it. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of had this puritanical, I, I imposed this purest vision on what the magazines were like. And when I got behind the scenes, I realized, well, maybe I didn't have the right sponsor at the time, or my sponsor wasn't renting the back page for the advertising at that time. There, there was so, there was, it was just disillusioning. And I, and I realize now, um, it wasn't so much, it's not that the surf magazines are so terribly corrupt, but it was just that I had such a pure idea of how they should be. And it was so, my early love of surfing was so pure that it was disillusioning to, um, to be a part of that. And so, and, and as the editor of Surfing Magazine, I had to go to a lot of parties. And when I say had to go, it was because I was like this figurehead for the magazine. A lot of them were put on by, you know, advertisers or prospective advertisers. So there was kind of a wink of like, you, you should probably go to that party. And um, I really, I, I got disillusioned not only on, on the surf, working for the surf mag, but for, for the, the sort of surf industry and for what my friends will call the Bromuda Triangle. Um, and it's the idea that once you're in it, you'll never get out of it. And so knowing two and a half years into my, my job at Surfing Magazine, um, I just realized I got to get as far away from this world as I can. Um, and so when I, when I completed the job, sort of like right after I, I got out, finished the job, went on a trip to Tabarua, wrote about a surf contest there, and then, and then came back and then moved to New York. And, uh, and in New York, I, I vowed to well, I, a couple of things. One, I vowed to not work for anyone ever again because when I was doing the job at Surfing Magazine, the idea of people looking at me sideways because I showed up at 9.30, not 8.30, but what, they did not know that you know I was up till like three in the morning writing captions on the printouts of the magazine. There was this thing of, I don't want to work for someone that has this narrow, you know, imposes these narrow uh, ideas onto it. And I think, you know, today's working, today's world, like I think, um, Silicon Valley, is, it's different. There's, there's appreciation for working on a home and, and all this stuff. But at that time, it was just so clear to me that I didn't want to work for anyone and I needed to be able to figure out how to make it as a freelance writer. Um, so I moved to New York, started doing that. Surfing kind of chased me there. I didn't know it, but I was expanding. And when I thought years earlier that I wanted to leave the surf world, um, I didn't, I didn't take into account that the surf, you know, surfing is this sort of live organism and the, and the tentacles are spreading out and they're going inland and they're going to big cities. They're, it's, it's sort of cross-pollinating with music and art and, and other cultural things that I'm interested in. Um, so when I moved to New York, it was sort of great to, to write about surfing. And the first job I did was I edited a magazine called Big and it was a surf issue. Um, and uh, and so, so I was there enjoying New York. I was kind of moving through the city that first year, the way I moved through surfing my first year, where just it was just so exciting to be there. And I was taking it all in. And it was kind of this, this world that, that uh, my surfing life never would have taken me to otherwise had I not kind of consciously tried to, to get off that track. Um, and then 9-11 happened. Um, at that time, I was in Portugal surfing. And uh, I went back to the city and um, probably one month after 9-11, I'm there, and a friend of mine invites me over to dinner, and he says, oh, and there's this friend that's going to be there, and I walk into this, his house, and I meet uh, Gisela Mata, who would become my wife, and uh, she was from Brazil. She was making a documentary about uh, New York 
it was called Nova York Umesh Depois, New York one month after. And it was sort of this um, trying to understand what happens to a place after a tragedy like 9-11. So it was interviewing people in lower Manhattan. It was getting statistical data on like the, the rising uh, sale of alcohol and tobacco. Um, and uh, as we would learn about eight or nine months later, there were a lot more, there was a lot of fornication happening in the wake of 9-11. Mm -hmm. Kids were born nine months later. Um, so she was working on this thing. We fell in love. We started up this wonderful relationship. We kind of lived hand to mouth in New York. Um, shitty little apartments. Then we would go to Sao Paulo or Rio. She was, a, she was a documentary filmmaker. She was trying to make her thing happen. I was trying to make my writing happen. Um, I'd done, right around that time, a book called uh, Headboard Will Travel, the uh, history of surf, skate, and snow. Most of it I wrote um, in Encinitas at my dear friend Garth's house. And, um, and that came out and it got me an agent. And I had a really great literary agent in New York. And one day over lunch I was telling him much the same stuff I'm telling you now, although much briefer. And he said, um, you should write a memoir about your life. It's interesting stuff. And the, and the kind of tension of your brother and you trying to be an athlete, you should write a memoir. And so I was all excited. And, and somewhere, I think on that, that original lunch when he said it, I said, like, you know, like, what would that, like, what is a what does a memoir do? And he's like, well, you know, they're real popular right now. I mean, there's a, you're not going to be riding around town in a limousine, but you know, we could maybe get you a hundred grand as an advance. And I just, I just like, I rode my skateboard home, just so damn excited. And I went back to my apartment. And at the time I had this, this uh, marijuana tobacco habit that was insidious and I couldn't stop. And I rolled up a joint and I just like smoked it. And I thought like, I'm going to write a memoir in a year and I get a hundred grand and my career is just going to go. And uh, so I started writing the thing, and you know, probably six months later, I shared it with my agent, and he read it. And when he called, he's like, you know, I got to call you and tell you what I think. And we had this out time scheduled. And I had my notepad with my my pen, and and he and he says, you know, um, Jamie, if this is what it's going to be like, I'm not sure. This is uh, it's not. I don't. I don't know if I can sell it. And I said, what what's wrong? And he's like, well, you know, there's just. There's just some things, this just not, it's not what I was thinking about in terms of a surf memoir. Um, so, so began what would be, uh, well, it's still going actually, but I spent a, the next 10 years trying to write this memoir about my surfing life and, and, it, and, it, and it didn't work and it, like, it continued to almost get worse and I continued to go into more of this kind of writer's block because he started telling me how he thought it should be and I'm this lifelong surfer having a guy who, uh, he was a great dude, but knows nothing about surfing, sort of telling me like what, what's saleable in the New York publishing world. Um, so I just kept struggling to write this thing, struggling to write this thing. Meanwhile, my lovely wife Gisela, her, her career is getting better and better, and she's doing TV shows for Brazil that are taking her around the world, and sometimes we're going to live in Sao Paulo for a couple of months while she does that. Sometimes we're going to live in London for a bit. Um, and all that stuff's happening, but I'm still just failing to write this memoir, and it's really eating at me. Um, and and I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm I have. The, I have kind of this idea in my head that like, the only way my life is going to be okay is to get this book, make this book work, and get it published, and have it whatever. I'm not hugely ambitious, but it's it's this sort of albatross of my life, um, and uh, and so. You know, and, and just to qualify, this is over like many, many years. And so at, at one point, my wife and I are getting further and further distant. Um, I'd applied for a, a, 
a writing residency at Yaddo, which is a, a arts residency in upstate New York, and I got it. I went to Yaddo. In some deluded state, I met a girl. I thought, in, the, in this kind of probably wanting to just escape my life, I just sort of threw myself into a relationship with someone. Um, and, you know, this was like over 10 days, but it, it, you have these accelerated sort of friendships that happen at these artist residencies. And then came home and sort of announced to my wife, like, I'm not, I'm not in this anymore. And met this new person, then I'm kind of, meanwhile, the latest version that I'd finished at the artist residency, my, my agent is shopping and, it's, and, I, and he's forwarding the email saying, the book's not working, the book's not working, the book's not working. Um, I'm in a new relationship. I'm wondering if the new relationship's working. Uh, about eight months into the new relationship, I kind of realize it's definitely not working. And Giselle and I are still in touch. She's in, in Brazil working on some stuff. Um, and one evening, I go to see my new girlfriend and, and just have this realization, like, just what the fuck are you doing with your life? And everything just is off. And, and you've got to get out of this relationship. Um, I'm riding my bicycle home in New York. It's a rainy day. And at one point, I was trying to go up one of those little curb things that, you know, in, there's a sidewalk and then there's the dips down and it's that, that little lip. And if you don't hit it sort of at a right angle, much like a wave with a surfboard, it can kind of skitter you. And it skitters me and I kind of fall into a car. Um, and then I keep riding on and go home and proceed to get into a fight with the new girlfriend. And I'm just, I'm, I'm sitting there like laying in bed going, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. And I have this totally sleepless night of, of, of thinking about how fucked up everything is. And then at about 6.30 in the morning, I hear a text message and it says, Jamie, call me now. And it's from Fernanda, who is Gisela's best friend. I call Fernanda and she's wailing on the phone and she says, Gisela's dead. Um, and so she was at a friend's on Easter Sunday having dinner. She was riding home in Rio. They were, she was living in Rio at the time. She was riding on the street. Going across the street, a bus made a wide turn. She didn't know it was turning. She ran into it, it threw her. It was Easter Sunday in a very Catholic country. The best staff was not there at the hospital that night. They thought she'd broken a hip. They diagnosed as a broken hip. She was bleeding internally and that's how she died. But it was so fascinating, you just caught it. I had the thing on the bike the night before. I'll never forget that. It was this incredible kind of synchronistic moment. Um, and it stood out to me, like I almost ate shit on my bike. And if I do the math and the time, it was not, it was very much like, it was that weird thing. If you saw it in a movie, you'd be like heavy handed bullshit. <laughs> and in, in real life, there was this incredible thing that was synchronistic. Yeah. And so I instantly go to Brazil and um, deal with that and do the funeral, the whole thing. And while I'm there, it's, I'm there for like a week. I'm, I think I was there for a couple of weeks, but while there, you know, I, 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 I didn't know I had so many lovely friends. And honestly, like that, that whole period, and when I say that whole period, I mean like that time of trying to write this memoir that I think is gonna validate my, my existence. Um, I feel, it's like it's taking me further and further away from connection with people. And when she dies, I just get this outpouring of love from my friends. You know, how are you doing? I'm so sorry, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I don't answer any of it because I'm, of course, dealing with a funeral, her family, her family embraced me after all that. Um, and then finally, about like eight days later, I, I kind of like look at my emails and my Facebook things and I just realize there's like about a hundred emails I've got to respond to and I think you know what forget it I'm just gonna like post on Facebook the the lowdown and I just start to tell how I met Gisela and 
And I start, I just keep kind of writing entries and it turns into like a serialized thing of our entire, uh, we were together 11 years. And what happens is um, I get notes about it and then it's like, this is the best thing I've never, you've never written so well in your life. Um, and so I, I just keep doing it and, and, and then I think, and then, you know, and I'm, and I have to stay alive afloat. So I've got other writing stuff happening, but I'm just realizing like somehow whatever, whatever kind of like mannered writing, whatever, like trying too hard version of writing that I had been doing, whatever I thought that was supposed to connect was, uh, was completely wrong. And it was this, it was just this thing of like having your life just devastated like made you step back into a voice that is actually authentic and real and it's who you are. And, uh, and so, so that was, that was six years ago. And then one of my like survival, one of the sort of the survival thing that happened in my mind was the only, you know, the only thing that is absolutely worth doing now, I almost did this transference from the memoir to the, the memoir about Giselle, which is the only, one thing I got to do before I die is write about my life with Giselle. And I kind of had done a version of it, but of course it was, you know, it probably would have totaled like 6,000 words, you know, it was like 15 pages or something. Um, but I did end up a while later writing, drawing from that, I kept tons of notes um, and I wrote a piece for the Surface Journal. It was called The Dazzling Blackness, and it was about this whole story. And it was kind of framed with body surfing because I'd done a lot of body surfing in Brazil while she was there. I spent a lot of time with her while working. And, uh, and I think, you know, it was, it, was, it was probably the best, it was the thing I'm most proud of that I've written, and it was the thing that was like the most urgent, the most that needed to, it, was, it needed to be written the way a lot of other things did not need to be written. Um, and, uh, but the thing that, you know, so, so, so it was six years ago that Gisela died, but the thing that uh, is so strange is like in the thick of that, in that year after she passed away, um, it was, there was this, there was this like clearing of the, the, this ha the haze or the, this sort of like gauze that hangs over our lives and, 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 and made, and for me personally, makes it hard to see the things that matter most just completely disappeared and everything was there in sharp relief. And I'm not, I'm definitely not going to like throw some platitude of like, you know, your friends or any of that stuff. I don't even know what it was, but there was a, a on that edge, on that sense of sort of, I don't care whether I live or die at this point. I feel so shitty. Everything is wrong. But that la the year after she died, I, every day I would apologize to the sky because I couldn't apologize to her. Um, but there was, you know, if, all I want to do is get out of it. Like if someone said, we can fast forward the clock 10 years, you'll be, you know, you're going to lose 10 years of your life, but you're not going to be feeling this raw way you do now. I would have said, absolutely. And now six years later, I have to go back to that. I go back to that place all the time just to remember the rawness and to remember how real it all was. And, uh, and again, it's, this is, I'm not like, I'm not going to end this with like call to tell the people you love, you love. Like it's not, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's something like that, but it's it's not it's more than that. And and um, but it was I don't know. It was a thing of when I was younger, when I first started wanting to be a writer. Um, it was sort of this over eager. I was overly eager to make it happen, and and I kind of um, I didn't have anything to draw from. And it was sort of you know in, in, in unexpectedly life threw me these things that kind of gave me made me step deeper into who I am and to actually like feel like, okay, well, I lack many things, one of which is an education, uh, but life experience, I, you know, there's been some stuff that's real and these, these, there's a sense of like 
having accrued experience that helped me to go deeper into my writing. Um, and um, last November, my house burned down. <laughs> I'd made this great life for myself after, you know, the year after she died was the worst year of my life. And then I moved back to Malibu and sort of things started to fall into place. And I ended up renting this beautiful guest house and having this wonderful surfing life. And, uh, and everything was going really, really good. And then uh, the Woolsey fire, November 8th and 9th um, came. Everything burned, including, this is an interesting one, including all the notebooks that I'd written into about Gisela, which was gonna be the memoir that I thought was the only thing that I was supposed to be doing in my life. It all burned and everything else burned. I mean, I, didn't, I, I was so arrogant to think that the fire would not jump PCH and come to my house, you know, and it did and everything was gone. And, uh, and then, um, so in the wake of that, about a week after it happened, I was talking to a friend who's a really great writer, and she was uh, telling, I was telling her the experience, and she said, you know, this would be a great piece for The New Yorker. And I said, yeah, and she's like, I've written for The New Yorker, let me, I'm gonna email the uh, editor that I know there and find out like who you would do this for. And then the next day, I, that happens, and then the editor says, I'd be curious about the piece, and I realized the Woolsey fire was still a really hot topic, and Dana Goodyear, a New Yorker staff writer, was reporting on it, and I thought, like, I can't, this is not something I can spend two weeks writing. And in sort of about two and a half, three days, I just threw the thing out, sent it in, welcoming and expecting rejection, and, and the editor goes, this is really great, we're gonna run it tomorrow. And, uh, and so the New Yorker was a big deal for me because I'm not, you know, I didn't, I have a piecemeal college education. I'm mostly just a surfer who got to travel and read a lot, but I didn't, I felt like the, uh, the New Yorker seemed like it was a, a long way off, but the piece was published. I was really happy. And, and again, I had the, uh, almost a deja vu, although it was not nearly as extreme as the loss of Gisela, but this idea of like this shitty thing happened to me. And yet in the, in that kind of sh shock of it all, um, Something in the writing, something got me, got me to the heart of something, and I didn't try to do anything clever. I didn't try to do any to to to, to, to like digress into anything. It was just like straight trenchant words moving across the page, and it worked. And uh, and so that I guess that's 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 what I got. <laughs> that's my that's my um, that's my story. <laughs> My, my mother, how you walking long? Your feet may slip and your soul may low. Since my soul got seed up in a kingdom, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Since my soul got a seed up in the kingdom. Baby, don't you cry, you know your mother been born to die. Since my soul got a seat up in a kingdom, that's alright, that's alright, that's alright, it could be alright, it could be alright. Since my soul got a seat up in a kingdom, that's alright. So long and tall, you ain't got fear, you'll sure to fall. That's my soul, gonna sit up in a kingdom. That's all right. My, my mother, how you walking long? 
Sonho, e mais levanho, sou melhor. Se mais ouro, a vida que é Jamie took some questions from the audience, and I'll play some of those replies for you here. Firstly, a question about the status of his memoir. David, you destroyed my entire talk. You know why? Because I'm still writing the memoir. <laughs> still writing the memoir. No, I'm writing a, a different, I'm, I'm writing a kind of um, a fictional version of it, but it's that story, but it's changed a little bit. But it's the, sa it's the, it's the same one that like dipped me into this thing. But... Um, that's what I'm doing, but it, uh, you know, the, the other thing, I guess this is, I kind of left out as my kind of coda the, to the talk was, um, not only did I like, step deeper into the writing, and I guess these are one and the same, I stepped deeper into my own writing, and, and, and as a result, I was like, no one's gonna validate my life. The, the New York publishing world is, by getting me the deal or the advance or the whatever, is not gonna make me feel like I'm okay in what I'm doing, so I guess, now writing, still writing this book, another version of it, it's just this story that I've sort of grappled with for a long time. Um, I, it's way less like fraught with, if this, if this doesn't work, I'm gonna jump off a cliff. It's more like, if it doesn't work, cool. And, and I, I mean, there, I read a really great essay by a writer I admire tremendously, John Jeremiah Sullivan, and he said, there's no such thing as wasted writing. And in fact, the 10 years that it took me to write, or the 10 plus years to, to write the memoir that never got published, I wrote the Becoming Westerly book in about eight months after that. Like I, I, not eight months after, but I wrote it in a span of eight months. And there's no way that sense of the long form narrative would have been there without the failed, mem the quote unquote failed memoir that I'd been writing before. So, um, so I'm writing the sort of novelized, fictionalized version of my family story, although it's probably more true than false. And then I'm writing, uh, I'm going to write more about Gisela and that story for sure. I just don't know what form it's gonna take. The next question was whether or not Jamie had any regrets about his professional surfing career, whether he wished he would have taken it further. No, but that's a great question. This is one you, you, you philosophers would probably be able to make more sense of than I can. But I think I was talking to someone the other day, and it was an, an ex-pro from my era, who I'm still friends with all of those folks. And it was, I can't remember who it was, but it was this thing of like, you know, had I had I made the top 16 that year, would my life be different now at age 55 or whatever he was? And he was like, probably not. But then the other side of it is, you know, I think it's, it's that, uh, you know, the, the Joan Didion dictum, the oft quoted, uh, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, right? Maybe the guys who won their world, won the world titles and, or who hit the top five or top 10 and hit these like top tiers, they would say that like I walk through life with just a little bit more confidence or I, you know, there's a little sense of accomplishment or achievement that I, I you know, because I did that thing. Um, I don't know because I did not do that. But the ones, the, the ones, my peers, the ones who sort of didn't make it, are, are like version of that story as well. You know, um, I, I just, it forced me to kind of like reinvent myself and to go on to something else. You know, it's a fascinating thing. There's, a, there's the movie Basquiat, but, by uh, John, uh, uh, Julian Schnabel. And there's a great, great scene where um, the Julian Schnabel character played by Gary Oldman is kind of swaggering through this art gallery and Willem Dafoe is playing a guy, a much older guy who is, who's um, hanging the art for the swaggering Julian Schnabel character. And, and, uh, and Willem Dafoe looks at him and he goes, you know, I'm an artist too. And he goes, oh yeah, what do you, what do you do? And he's like, 
I paint. And then he goes, I never got famous. I'm, I'm, no, he goes, I'm glad I never got famous. It gave me time to develop. And, and I thought like, that is almost like I'm the guy, I'm exactly that. And it's sort of, I never hit the heights, but I very humbly walked into, okay, I've got to reinvent myself and become a writer and I'm happy with that life now. Folks who hit the top, Tommy Carroll had a heavy, he's very open about his addiction problems afterwards. Um, you know, bless him, Sonny Garcia, what he's just gone through. I mean, there's definitely um, that kind of, it's almost like the child actor syndrome where you peak so early in life and you've got another 40 years to sort of live and, and you're, and there's this thing that I've really watched that happens in it and it's sad and I'm kind of glad that I don't have that to that extreme, certainly, which is the guys who are world champions, they're kind of like, painted into this corner it's like they're um it's like they've been like cast in the hollywood wax museum of like that's the world champion from 1988 or 9 or 90 or whatever and they're still seen that way and i think it's almost like on the like there's one way of looking at it which is like a legend what more do you want in your lifetime and then there's another one and it's very buddhist and it's sort of like that to be like locked into that identity your entire life that's the one role you play that's how everyone sees you and that's like being it's like being shackled, you know, and um, embalmed in some way, you know, and I, and I so I see that, like, the, the world champion guy would probably be like, yeah, you just sound like a guy who never made your dreams come true. But the guys who never made their dreams come true, with, there's like a validity to both, you know. This next reply was an extension from some previous questions about whether or not one needs a trauma to write well. And then this person's question specifically was about whether one's surf style and writing styles are linked. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing because I had, when I was, um, this is almost like an extension of that thing of once I jumped off the pro tour, I did the best surfing I ever did. That year or two afterwards um, was the best surfing I ever did. When, uh, when I moved to New York, I was sure, it was very rigid thinking, but I was sure that like any time surfing was spent not reading or writing. And I had this idea that when I moved to New York, I've got to be, I've got to become more serious and I've got to get away from surfing because I'm just a dude who hangs out. I was just sort of too comfortable. It was too comfortable. Um, and, uh, and then, and I had an interesting little kind of wink from the cosmos at one point I was trying to write the memoir. It was failing and I was sure that I needed to get an MFA. And I, I actually sat in at the new school and at NYU to find out how much it would cost for me to get an MFA. And I realized there's no way I have that money that, and, I, and I can't do it. And then right at that time, I'd applied for a Fulbright fellowship and I got it. And it was to Japan to write about youth culture. And it was this thing of, I was almost ready to give up writing. I was just thinking like, maybe I just get a job with Quicksilver or something. And then that thing came and it was sort of like, okay, I'm gonna continue struggle financially. Thanks, thankfully, Gisela was fully in, down for the like, let's have a life of adventure. We don't need to accrue material things. Um, and, uh, and so I got the Fulbright. But then what happened was, so I was kind of pushing surfing away and trying not to allow it to take over my life. And then after she died, I moved back to LA instantly. Like I went to Brazil, did the funeral, did all that stuff, came back to LA. My dear sister met me, came back to New York. My dear sister met me and she goes, you're not, we're not leaving you alone here. You're coming back. And I went back and I stayed with her in Culver City. She's a single mom with two kids. And I kind of like got to live in a house with, you know, there are voices coming from the other room, which I really needed voices around. I needed to hear stuff. And a friend of mine lived in Malibu and he said like, let's surf, let's surf. And, and honestly, the only thing that felt good was surfing. And, and I, it's sort of like, it sounds so cliche, but surfing just totally healed me. It was, it was just like a little, little, a little less heavier. And I mean, I felt like that, that grieving process, I just felt like 
you, I'm sure you probably could have seen it in me at the time. In my face, in my body language, I was just this guy like just dumped on the ground. And the, like surfing was the thing that like put a little like, there's a little spring there all of a sudden, more internally than externally. And it slowly did that more and more. And then I had this realization, um, and uh, you know, Aaron and I were talking about this last night, but it's sort of having like the surfing life and having the, uh, and I'm sure if this goes for skateboarding, skating, etc. It's just like the, the, this lightness that is that kind of can shape your entire worldview or your vision as an artist. And so to keep that at a certain age, and I've realized this more and more, I see more and more people get bitter. I see more and more heaviness in people as, you know, five plus decades on earth that shit's happened to them. And, and the, the, levit, the lightness, the, the ability to laugh easily that was once there is no longer there. For me, like that little, that the joy of surfing, and then the afterglow thing of like, ah, oh, like body's ready to do it. I'm, it's, I've never valued it so much, and I'll never apologize for it because there was a time where I was actually like a apologetic surfer in some way, a reluctant surfer. The original podcast that Brissick and I recorded together was recorded in the kitchen of his Malibu home a year prior to it burning down. We did a deep dive into the loss of his wife, Gisela, and his struggle with never having reconciled after his affair. It's pure, candid, and honest Brissick, one of my all-time favorite chats. We also dug into his book, Becoming Westerly, which follows famed Australian surfer Peter Druin as he transitions into Westerly Windina, a story that is just way richer and deeper than you could possibly imagine. Brissick's also involved in a documentary about the same exact subject, which has some unbelievable updates since the book was published and finished. So we're eagerly awaiting that documentary. And uh, again, I've posted a link to that podcast chat, episode number 244. It is available in your show notes. And then his latest book, Dazzling Blue, is available on birdwell.com for a meager $20. It's such a worthwhile purchase. And again, would make a great inexpensive Christmas gift. So consider buying a bunch of those to gift. And of course, I know Birdwell is known for their board shorts that they've been making right here in Southern California for 58 years. But they started telling me uh, nearly a year ago about this uh, fall and winter line of clothing that they were designing and building. And that stuff was just released as of last week. Every piece was handmade here in Southern California with the same craftsmanship that they've been known for since 1961. And every stitch is backed by a lifetime guarantee. The new line includes basics like a raglan crew neck pullover, all the way to like a luxe shawl cardigan. And then my new favorite, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is this terry cloth polo, which is a really luxurious terry cloth, like a robe, but it's tailor cut wooden buttons, so it looks really nice and feels amazing. It's all on birdwell.com. Use our promo code SURF 
to get 10% off your entire purchase and they never do sales or um, discount products. So take advantage of this promo code. So 10% off and then Birdwell will continue to support our work here. Birdwell.com promo code SURF. And then also this month we're doing that almond soft top giveaway. So any donation that comes in in the month of November will be entered to win one of two surfboards. We have two to give away. Uh, 5.4 quad and then an 8.0 single fin. It's part of their R-Series soft top collection and it's a collaboration with the Surfrider Foundation. So if you purchase one of those boards, a proceed of the sales goes to the Surfrider Foundation. All the boards are 100% recyclable. So go to surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate to see the boards and to support this show through PayPal or Venmo and you will be entered to win one of those two boards. And that is all that I have for you today. I hope that you are enjoying the first jewel of the Triple Crown over on the North Shore, the Holly Eva Comp. Um, I actually recorded an episode with another surf podcast. My good buddy Tony Roberts, the photographer, filmmaker down in Costa Rica, has launched his own podcast. It is called The Surfcast. You can find it wherever you listen to this show. And uh, episode number three, he interviewed me, and we had a nice chat about surf podcasting and some of my origin story. So if you'd like to check that out, search for The Surfcast. And then I dropped an episode of Spit today with Scott Bass, so go grab that. I'll be back on Friday with Chaz Smith for an episode of The Grit. Sorry that we missed our recording last week on Friday. And then I'll be back here on Surf Splendor on Wednesday of next week, the day before Thanksgiving. So... That is all for this week. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred up.